You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. revival were to strike, do you know what it would look like? If revival were to come to Sandpoint, what would, it, what would it look like? What would it be like? Would you be able to discern between a genuine, true revival and something that's not a genuine, true revival? Just this last week, I, there's a certain website that I enjoy going to from time to time, and it, it does Christian satire in the form of news articles and they sort of poke fun at us, and it's, it's in-house because, I, I, from what I can discern, the people who write this are Christians themselves, but they sort of have fun with some of the loony things that we do in the Christian church in this country. And I go there once a month to this website because I enjoy satire and I enjoy stuff like that, and I sometimes make fun of myself, which I enjoy doing more than I make, like making fun of other people. And so I like it when other people make fun of us because I think it's funny. There was a, a story in this last issue of the news on this particular satire website that kind of is illustrative and, and humorous at the same time. And I want you to keep in mind, it's satire. It didn't actually happen. New Hope Church had everything lined up for a successful revival meeting. But when the Holy Spirit neglected to show up, it left them with three nights of less than blessed worship and evangelism. Quote, we were counting on the Holy Spirit's presence, but we pressed forward anyway says the pastor. In the absence of the spirit of peace, the worship leader tried to rouse people with shouts of praise and extended worship jams. He let the band go long so young people could discover deeper reservoirs of their personal passion for God. I'm pretty sure I got something from God tonight, said one sweating young worshiper after the meeting. She said she would come again the next evening and work hard to make worship happen. The pastor says the services will continue as promised because they advertise it in the local paper as a three-day revival. And, quote, even if the meetings aren't inspired, we can still be people of our word, he says. What do you do if you schedule a revival and the Holy Spirit doesn't show up for your scheduled meetings? It's kind of humorous, isn't it? But it happens all the time. If revival were to come to Sandpoint or to Kootenai, what would it look like? What would be the indications of a revival? How would you know that it's a genuine revival? What do you do, or can you do anything to start a revival? You know, one of the weird things about revivals is that you can't schedule them. You can't schedule a revival. You can't set a date and say, on such and such a day, we're going to have a revival. You know why? Because revivals are not something that we do. Revivals are sovereign acts of God. And you can no long, no more schedule a revival than you can schedule the salvation of some individual. Next week I'm going to get that guy saved. The week after that I'm going to get that guy saved. Today I'm going to save this guy. You can't schedule those things. Why? Because salvation is a sovereign act of God. We don't save anybody. God reaches down and saves people. And He does so at His time, in His way. You can't schedule a revival any more than you can schedule the salvation of somebody. And once you understand what a revival is, then you can see just how foolish it is to try and schedule one. What is a revival? When I say revival, or at the very beginning of the message when I said the word revival, what popped into your mind? Let me see if I can 
pin it somewhere in a, in a frame. You tell me if I'm close to this. When I say revival, you picture a tent. Uh, you picture a sawdust floor, some folding metal chairs, a traveling preacher who stands up with all of his enthusiasm and his passion, and he preaches hell and damnation and fire and brimstone. And at the end of all of that, as people are crowded into that tent, at the end of all of that, they... The pianist who travels with the preacher plays through just as I am a couple hundred times and there's the emotional appeal and people are coming forward and getting saved. Am I close? Maybe for some of you, the, and then when they're all done, the preacher packs up his tent and his pianist and they head off to another town and they do this for two, three, five, seven, ten nights maybe and the preacher gets up and he regurgitates the same message every night because he's only got two or three in his hip pocket that he carries with him from town to town. Maybe for you, the idea of a revival has with it some sort of spiritual manifestations. Uh, tongues, exorcisms, slaying in the spirit, some sort of phenomena, some sort of supernatural thing that you can't explain. I've gone to such revivals. Before I ever critique anything, I like to be there in person and to see myself what goes on. And I've gone to meetings like this. Is that what a revival is? This may shock you to find this out, but this is true. A revival, the work of God during a revival is no different than the work of God at any other time. It's the same work. You think that has to be something different than what he does. Otherwise, it's not a revival. That's not true. You know what a revival entails? A lot of people getting saved. People getting saved. The Great Awakening during the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers as they went and they preached from city to city and the Great Awakening came, there was many people getting saved. People would travel on horseback in the rain and the snow and the worst of conditions and they would huddle around the outside of buildings just to hear the Word of God preached and then when they would hear that, they would literally collapse in conviction and believe on Christ for salvation. Many people were getting saved all over New England and the New York area. People getting saved. And a revival also entails saints being sanctified. That spirit of apathy melts away and people get a genuine fire for the works and the things of God and for the Word of God. And Christians begin to get rid of their sin and get rid of their apathy and really get a burn in their heart for spiritual things. And their walk with God grows closer because holiness is real to them and they desire holiness. And they repent of their sin and confess their sin and turn to the Lord and begin things again. That happens inside the church. People getting saved and people getting sanctified. And that's what happened during the Great Awakening in the 1700s under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and such. Jonathan Edwards, before the Great Awakening, he wrote in some of his diaries and journals how he lamented the condition of the church. People are so apathetic. People just don't care. They come to the services and they leave and smacking their lips and it's like nothing happens and people just didn't care about spiritual things. Largely unchurched. People didn't have a passion for God. This is the 1700s. And then the Great Awakening came and all of a sudden came this awakening to sin. The reality of sin and a desire for holiness. So people get saved and people get sanctified. Or they get rid of their sin and start walking holy lives. Is that anything different than what God does every single day? Every single day, people get saved all around you. By the thousands, all over this country, all over the world, people are getting saved. God reaches down every single day and saves thousands of people, brings them grace, brings them His Word and His truth, and and they believe. 
And every single day, Christians wake up and repent of their sin, confess their sin, desire to walk closer with the Lord, and to walk in holiness with Him. That happens every single day. All a revival is, is a spike in that activity. When the same things that have been happening all along happen with greater intensity and greater frequency. So that instead of a few people getting saved, you have a few hundred people getting saved. Instead of individuals slowly being sanctified, people all of a sudden purge themselves of their sins. You can have a revival without God changing anything that He does. He simply does what He does, but He does it in greater intensity, with greater frequency, at a different level. But it's the same work. There was a revival of sorts in the city of Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. And I want you to turn there in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at a revival of sorts. I say of sorts because Luke really doesn't cash it out as a revival. He doesn't call it a revival. But what we see going on in Ephesus really is the same thing that we would expect to have seen anytime God begins to bring His Word with power to any area. Acts chapter 19 is the city of Ephesus, and Paul is there. This follows hot on the heels of that whooping that the sons of Sceva took at the hands of the demon-possessed man. We looked at that last week. We're going to look at uh, closely at verses 18 through 20. Look at verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I told you a couple weeks ago that this whole passage dealing with the city of Ephesus beginning in verse 8, going all the way through the end of verse 20, has as its theme the Word of God. It's mentioned twice. In fact, we could kind of outline it like this. Verses 8 to 10 is the Word of God as it is taught. Do you remember Paul went into the synagogue? He was preaching the Word and teaching the Word. Then that opportunity dried up. And so Paul left the synagogue and went to the school of Tyrannus, and there he taught for two years the Word. Luke says in verse 10, "...so that all who are in Asia, Jews and Greeks, heard the Word of the Lord." That's the Word of God taught. Verse 11 through 17, which we looked at last week, is the Word of God authenticated through the extraordinary miracles that God was doing at the hands of Paul and through that fabricated miracle that the sons of Sceva tried to do in casting out the demons. And then verse 18, 19, and 20 is the Word of God prevailing in the lives of believers as believers were sanctified. In Ephesus, you had two things going on. You had a lot of people getting saved because a lot of people were hearing the Word of the Lord. And a lot of people were getting sanctified. They were getting rid of sin in their lives, turning from it, casting it off, and walking freshly with the Lord. Verse 17. I want you to notice that verse because everything that we looked at last week is a transition or connected to what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 17 says, This became known to all. What became known? Remember what it was? The sons of Sceva went into the demon-possessed man, laid hands, said, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And then they learned an important lesson about the uniqueness of Paul and the Christian message because the demon-possessed man turned on them, stripped them naked, beat them up and wounded them and drove them from the house. And then everybody heard about this because it's hard to keep something like that secret in any community. Everybody heard and great fear fell upon all of them. And Luke says in verse 17 that the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now I suggested last week that it happened in two ways. First, because it It identified Paul as a unique spokesman for God, but also identified the Christian message as unique from all of its competitors. 
But verse 18, 19, and 20 gives us three ways that specifically that the name of Jesus was being magnified. Look at verse 18. First of all, the name of Christ was magnified when His people confessed their sin. Verse 18 says, Many of those who had believed kept coming and confessing and disclosing their practices. What practices? Well, verse 19 tells us these were magic arts. Things involved with the occult and spiritism. Things involved with demonism and spirit worship and and the type of things that the sons of Sceva were doing, the exorcism. Who kept coming forward and disclosing their practices? Who was it that did that? What does verse 18 say? was the believers. You had believers involved in spiritism? That's right. Ephesus was that kind of a city. We have letters today, or scrolls today, in different museums. There's one in London. We refer to them as the Ephesian letters. And they're just scrolls of incantations and, and spirit things. And Ephesus was known for its being steeped in, in superstition and spiritism and demon worship and incantation. So you had believers who were involved in all of these things. Ouija board type stuff, tarot card type stuff, incantations and spells and magic. And that's why the sons of Sceva felt so at home in Ephesus. Because they could come into Ephesus and they had a ready audience with all of the people there. Just as Athens was known for its intellectualism and philosophy, and just as Corinth was known for its immorality and its debauchery, so Ephesus was known for its spiritism and its demonism. That's the type of city that Ephesus was. And so these Christians had been involved in all of this demonic activity and all of this spiritism, and then they became believers, and there seems to be a period of time when they were doing both of these things. But something happened that caused the Christians to come forward in mass and start disclosing everything that they were involved in. What was it that happened? What was it that happened that caused the Christians all of a sudden to realize, you know what, our involvement with this spiritism stuff is useless and it's dangerous. What happened? Skiva. A bunch of guys coming in trying to use some incantations on some spirits to manipulate things, and they get whooped and sent out of the house naked. Suddenly, many of those who were practicing these very same things started coming forward and confessing. And we've been involved in this too. And they were confessing their sins. Now how is it that believers who are believers and in the church and listening to Paul can be at the same time practicing these magic arts with the spells and the incantations and all of the the demonism and the spiritism, how can they be doing both of these at the same time? Do you know that it's it's true of us that when we become believers, we don't always get rid of all of our unsaved ways of thinking right at the beginning, do we? You become a believer, sometimes it takes a while to get rid of how you've been programmed to think while you were an unbeliever. And if you're involved in all of this immorality and demonism and spiritism as the people in Ephesus were, you become a believer and they didn't at first realize, hey, my practice in these things is inconsistent with my Christian profession. And you and I do the same thing. We think a certain way and we live a certain way for all of these years, then we become a believer and sometimes our separation from sin is instantaneous. It happens right away. There are certain sins that we just shed and we don't struggle with them. We don't have a problem with them. Then there are other sins that are a battle with our flesh from the day that we get saved till the day that we die. And we never seem to have victory over those things. And they just want to conquer us. And there are ways of thinking that we have, ways of approaching life, ways of doing business, ways of viewing things 
that we just don't shed right when we become believers. That's the problem with some of the books that I mentioned last week. I told you about some of the books that deal with dealing with the occult, Mike Warnke, Rebecca Brown, Neil T. Anderson. That's the problem is some of these people came out of witchcraft and paganism and they had a certain way of doing their religion back when this was the mode of their day. And then they become believers and they take that mentality and they force it onto Scripture and they say we should be doing the same things but make it good. So that you have the bad force and you have the good force. We used to use spiritism, incantations, certain prayers to control things when we were in demonism. Now we're going to use certain prayers, certain scriptures, certain words to control things and manipulate things now that we're believers. It happened in Corinth. Do you know how long it took for the Corinthians to realize, hey, my immorality is inconsistent with my Christian profession. Paul had to correct them on that more than one time because they just couldn't get it. That holiness, holiness meant purity. They didn't understand that. It took a while to get rid of that old way of thinking. Same thing happened in Ephesus. You had believers who, when they became believers, they tried to keep their spiritism and their old way of doing things, their old life, trying to have that and their faith. But then the whole thing with Sceva happened, and Paul says they began disclosing. That's an interesting word. It means to reveal something. They started revealing their secrets. You see, according to magic arts, the potency of a spell or an incantation is bound up with its secrecy. The more secret something can be, the more powerful it is. And the more people who are in on the secret, who know what something is, the less power it has. And so they began, the Christians started coming forward and they were just disclosing it. Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I used to be. Here's what I was involved in. Here's what I was saying. Everything's right out in the open. No hiding. No secrets. There's just this open disclosing and shedding of their sin. What was causing that? Well, two things. The object lesson was Sceva, but the Word of God was involved in that as well. As they began to confess what it was that they were doing. Many of them, Christians, getting rid of that and confessing. Listen, when the Spirit of God is at work in your life, you have no problem confessing sin. When the Spirit of God is bringing conviction, and it's a genuine work of the Spirit of God, then confession of sin is no problem. You should be willing to do that. Yeah, you're right. What I did was wrong. Lord, I confess this. I confess this to whoever I've wronged. It's not a problem. They didn't try and hide it. They didn't say, well, we'll keep our demonism and our spiritism over here in the closet and we just won't bring it out when we have other believers over for dinner. Uh, we might play the Ouija board with somebody else, but when we have people from the church in, we're going to keep that. We'll shut the doors in the cabinet and put this up out where nobody can see it and put on a good front. They didn't hide their sin. They confessed it. They didn't excuse their sin. Well, you don't understand. That Ouija board was given to me by my cousin. I can't get rid of that. He would be hurt. They didn't say, my grandmother gave me those tarot cards. That spell was passed down to me by my great-grandfather. I can't get rid of that. That's a family heirloom, that spell is. They didn't do that. They didn't hide it. They didn't excuse it. They didn't deny it. Now look, Paul, it might be sin to you, but it's not sin to us. This is part of our life. We don't think it's sin. We don't think it's wrong. They didn't do any of that. Once they realized it was wrong, once they realized how futile, how dangerous the things were that they were involved in, they confessed it. Just open, honest, straightforward, spirit-wrought, genuine confession. And the name of the Lord was magnified when His people confessed their sin. Look at verse 19. The name of the Lord was magnified when His people repented of their sin. Verse 19 says, Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 
50,000 pieces of silver. They say, are confession and repentance the same thing? They're not. They're different. You can confess a sin and never repent of it. You know that? You can admit that something is wrong, admit that you've been in error, admit that what you did was sinful or wicked, and never turn from it. Because to repent means to think differently afterwards. It means that you have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of will, so that the thing you once gloried in now is your shame. So you can confess that something is wrong and never turn from it. And say, yeah, I did it, it was wrong. That's right. That's a confession. But it's not a spirit-wrought confession. It's not done by the Spirit. How do I know that? Because confession will always be coupled with repentance. Yes, what I did was wrong, and by the grace of God, I'll never do it again. And I'm going to turn from it, and I'll no longer practice this. I'm no longer going to do this. That's repentance. Not only did they confess, but they repented. They brought all of their books and their scrolls and their incantations and their tarot cards or Ouija boards or whatever it was that they had. They brought all of these out into the street and they started a bonfire. And it was no small bonfire because look what Luke tells us. They counted up the cost of these things. 50,000 pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wage. That's 137 years salary that was represented in that bonfire. Now to put that in today's dollars, if you take the average income in the United States last year, which was $44,000 was the average income, to put that in today's dollars, you'd have to multiply that by $137. You come up with $6 million. That's the cost. And that gives you some idea of what kind of repentance, what kind of genuine revival of sorts this was. As people realized what it was they were doing, they brought them out and they burned them. They set fire to them. And I want you to notice something. They removed the temptation from their lives. They didn't say, what we did was wrong, we'll never do it again, so we're just going to put these things in the closet. That never works. If you've repented of, of drunkenness, then you're a fool if you go to a bar or you keep alcohol in your home. If you've repented of pornography and involvement in pornography then that means you destroy the pornography. And if it comes into your house through the computer and you can't control that, then you cut the phone line, you destroy the computer, you do anything you have to do to get rid of the temptation. This is what Scripture calls making no provision for the flesh. Once I've repented of it, I get rid of everything that has to do with it. If I've repented of drug abuse, I get rid of the paraphernalia and the drugs. Destroy it. And notice that they destroyed it. They didn't sell it at a yard sale. They didn't say, well, we have no need for this. We might as well turn this into real cash. I'm not going to be involved in this anymore, but Joe can use my pornography. He likes that stuff. I'll give it to him. No, if it's a sin to you, and if it's a stumbling block to you, and it's wrong in your life, then destroy it. Don't pass it on to somebody else. Six million dollars worth of product was burned. Those scrolls fetched a high dollar. They were valuable. And this is an entire market in Ephesus. You're going to see this in a couple of weeks, how the fact that this was such big business in Ephesus ended up costing Paul some problems. Because when this started, type of stuff started going on, it started to hurt the pocketbooks of the people who were peddling these things. And that caused Paul some serious difficulties. Big money. Six million dollars. Listen, friends, the, the cost of our repentance, the cost of what we give up is irrelevant to the individual who is repenting of their sin and confessing their sin, it doesn't matter whether it's $6 or $6 million. The cost is irrelevant. Because what they really want is holiness. 
So it doesn't matter what they cost them. If you're involved in a hobby or a business or, or your industry is somehow tied up with something immoral that causes you or somebody else to sin, then it doesn't matter how much money you have invested in your hobby or your business or your career, you destroy it. If you're a, a peddler of adult materials on the corner and you get saved, you destroy it. You don't sell the business, you destroy it. You don't want anything to do with that. And you start over if need be. Six million dollars up in smoke. And I don't think those people batted an eye. Doesn't matter how many days' wages they'd invested in that. It was sin. It was their old life. They repented of it, confessed it, and they destroyed it. That's repentance. We are turning away from it. We want nothing to do with it anymore. The name of Christ is magnified when His people confess their sin, when His people repent of their sin. And third, I want you to look at verse 20. When the Word of God prevails. Verse 20 says, So the Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's the theme of the whole section. That's the story of Ephesus. The story of Ephesus is the triumph of the Word of God over everything else. Over the Jewish exorcists, over the other traveling itinerant preachers, over the sins within the church, it was the Word of God that came in like a steamroller and just purified the city. It was mightily prevailing and triumphing. Look up at verse 10. It's all about the Word of God. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the Word of the Lord. Verse 20, And the Word of the Lord was triumphing mightily and prevailing. That's what happened in Ephesus. You may not know this, but let me share with you a little detail about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was instrumental in the formation of our New Testament. And it's kind of ironic because it's almost as if once they got rid of all the bad literature in Ephesus and the church, it became a repository for good literature. Now listen, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. We'll take note of that next week. Not this week, but next week we'll note that. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus. From Rome, he wrote the letter of the Ephesians to the Ephesians to Ephesus. Then he wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. And then the Apostle John later came to Ephesus, and he wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John from Ephesus. Eight of our New Testament books were written from or to the city of Ephesus. That's what Luke means when he says the Word of God was triumphing and mightily prevailing. Once those people cleaned out their lives and their closets, all of a sudden they became a repository for divine truth. And a quarter of our New Testament, more than a quarter of our New Testament, was written to or from this one city where the Word of God triumphed and mightily prevailed. That's what was happening. Scripture was having its way in the lives of those people. It was coming in and just purifying the church, cleansing people of their sin. People were getting saved. People were getting sanctified. And they became a hub for the Word of God. And I want you to notice how central the Word of God is to that revival. Do you think any of this would have happened without Scripture? Do you think any of this would have happened without Paul there proclaiming and teaching the truth? None of that would have happened. Before you can have any kind of revival, any kind of renewal, any kind of reformation, you have to have people brought back to biblical truth. You have to have the Word of God at the center of it, or it's not a genuine revival. It doesn't matter how emotional the appeal is. It doesn't matter how emotional the response is. If it's not the Word of God at the center of it, it'll never last. It'll never be a genuine revival. You must have the Word of God which is brought to bear upon our hearts and our lives so that we are convicted and we confess and we repent 
and we walk with God. And that never happens apart from Scripture. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Is it not clear, as you take a bird's-eye view of church history, that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined? What is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. Lloyd-Jones is right. Here's what he's saying. You cannot have a revival or a renewal apart from the centrality of the Word of God. And if you take that out of the church, and if you take that out of your life, then your hope for holiness is lost. You will never be made holy, no matter what you do or what you read, if you neglect this book. Because this is the instrument of your holiness. This is what the Spirit of God uses to convict us and to convert us and to cause repentance so that we walk with Him. You can't have it apart from Scripture. Scripture must be at the center of it. Scripture has to be the hub of it. The Word of God, verse 20 says, was growing mightily and prevailing. I want you to notice one last thing. I want you to notice what it was that magnified the name of the Lord. Confession, repentance, obedience, basically. Sometimes we think, well, in order to magnify the Lord, I need a television camera and a microphone or or I need a, a radio program that's all my own or I need some platform. In order to magnify the Word of the Lord, I have to have some sort of ability to perform massive marvels and wonders and signs or something like that. Listen, God is magnified in the signs that Paul was doing in Ephesus. Sure he was. Now, Paul was magnified in some of the great grand things that were taking place through the apostle in the city of Ephesus. But Luke doesn't really say that those were the things that magnified the name of the Lord. How was it that the name of the Lord was magnified? Repentance and confession. You and I can do that, can't we? See how simple the magnification of the name of the Lord is? Friends, it's not necessarily in the big flashy things that catch people's attention. The Lord is magnified when you and I read Scripture and we say something in there that convicts us and we confess that to the Lord and we turn from that sin and purpose by His grace to honor Him in everything that we do from this point forward. That magnifies God. You don't have to have the platform. You don't have to have the flashy, supernatural, phenomenal things accompanying your life. God is magnified. His name is magnified in the small things, and His name can be magnified without anybody else present. Verse 20 of chapter 19 says that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's not the only time that Luke says that. Throughout the book of Acts, Luke says things like this. Acts 6-7, the word of the Lord kept on spreading. Acts 12-24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Acts 13-49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. This is a progress report. Notice how Luke connects the growth of the church to the spread of the Word. Notice in Acts chapter 19, verse 20, how Luke connects the growth of the Word of God to its power and influence in the life of the believer. Do you notice that? Friends, you want to grow the kingdom? Then live a holy life. It really boils down to that. If you and I want to have an influence for God, if you want your church to grow, whether it's this one or some other church, then be a holy believer. Confess, repent of your sin, and purpose to walk with God. If you won't do that, then you stagnate not only your own life, but also the lives of other Christians. The spread of the Word, the growth of the church, and the growth of the kingdom is bound up in the influence of the Word of God in your life and in my life. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 19, verses 8-20. through 20. The Word of God taught, the Word of God authenticated, 
and the word of God prevailing in the life of the believers. As a result of that, God's word was, God's name was magnified and the word continued to grow and to increase and to prevail mightily. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for its power. We thank you that in your word, you have provided for us everything that pertains to life and to godliness. We thank you, Father, that you, by your spirit, take your word and apply it to our hearts and bring about conviction and confession and repentance. And Father, we are reminded once again this morning of how this is to be part of our everyday activity. What we see happening in Ephesus on a large scale should be happening in our hearts on a small scale on a daily basis. We ask God that you would continue to use your word as that instrument whereby your spirit convicts us of our sin and encourages us and strengthens us and that you would give us the grace to walk in holiness before you in order that we might live revived and reformed and powerful lives for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, and for the advancement of your word. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.